we we lift you up in this place and we worship the name that is above all other names that you would be here and in our hearts this morning there would be no rivals that in our hearts this morning that you would have no equals that in this place as we lift our voices united all together this morning lord we give you praise we fill this sanctuary your house with the praises that you deserve and we thank you for your presence be with us as we continue to go forward and all god's people all together we say Amen. don't sit down <laughs> that's what you wanted to do huh take a moment look around you can actually do a 360 if you want to this is your church friends this is your church Don't sit down, not yet. In scripture, listen, Psalm 133. In Hebrew, right? You all knew that. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. All right, you can sit down. Now, I, I want you to hear this. I want you to understand. We have a big family in our house. So we have, we have our kids. That, that's our, in our house, right? But then we have the extended family. We have the grandparents and we have the brothers and sisters and the in-laws. And it's great when we get together and we see each other in pockets. But there is something awesome when we all come together. We all get to see each other. And so we celebrate. God is up to something new at Calvary. And so we are thankful. Uh, this is our time. This is the moment to come together, to recognize, to see some people. You possibly don't know half of the people in this room. So this is a generational potluck. And so we get to enjoy one another and we get to love one another. The person sitting next to you or behind you or across from you may have taken your favorite parking spot or your coveted seat here in the worship center. Um, but as you can see, there's still room for us to grow at Calvary Church. And so our prayer is that we fill up the rest of these seats. Today, uh, we're going to start the next part of the Mark series. And we've been talking about this question and sitting with this question, who is Jesus? And so Jesus has been going and Mark has been taking us through in his gospel a rapid pace. He's going from this side of the galley to this side. He's healing, he's feeding people, he's getting a following, there's a crowd. And in this next section, and what we get to do today, this is the, the fulcrum, this is the pivotal moment where everything changes and now Jesus is going to set his mind on telling the disciples exactly who he is. He's going to tell his disciples exactly why he came and what he wants us to do. And it's not as we expect. And it makes sense because God is an unexpected God. As God weaves his story throughout his people, this unexpected God pulls his people out of this place called Egypt and he brings them up to a sea and they had no idea how they're gonna get around and unexpectedly God breaks the sea open. He calls an unexpected guy named Moses and later on we see 
some of these unexpected characters, guys like Gideon who are hiding, and he says, mighty warrior. He goes up to a young shepherd boy named David, and he says, I want you to take out the giant and now lead my people. And then most unexpectedly, God comes here to earth in an unexpected way, puts on flesh, and shows us and tells us how he wants us to live. And so would you go to Mark chapter 8? And we're going to start today in verse 27. We're going to go through verse 38. And this is our series as we cover this in-between section of Mark chapters 8 through 10. We're going to deal with an unexpected conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. This unexpected conversation is pivotal and it's important for us still today. Jesus goes for a walk, and the classroom for his disciples has been along seashores, and it's been around synagogues, and it's been in open fields, but now Jesus is going to teach his disciples as they go along the way. And so Mark chapter 8, verse 27, it says this, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? Who is Jesus? Now, this is unexpected because the place that he goes, I don't know if you know much about Caesarea Philippi, but this is a place that good Jewish boys would never ever go to. This is what it actually looks like. It's at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the highest peak in Israel. 9,000 feet, it towers. It actually snows in this place. And from here, there's water that comes down. It feeds into, and this is actually the beginning of the Jordan River. The Jordan River is formed by three different rivers, comes together. But this is the place. You see this towering rock cliff. This is what it may have looked like a couple thousand years ago. But I want you to fix your eyes right here. It says the Grotto of Pan. This is a rendition of what it may have looked like back in those days. And this place is important. Let me tell you why. Herod, he builds a temple to Augustus. Herod believes that it's better to make a friend before you need a friend. And so he's kissing up a little bit to Augustus and he's creating this temple and it's a big, beautiful marble structure. But in this place, there is a lot of other worship that's going on. In fact, this is a high place. This is a place where the god Pan is being worshiped. Now Pan is half man, half goat. He is a god of fertility. And in this place, it says this, this is Josephus, a Jewish historian from the first century, and says, Herod dedicated to Augustus a temple of white marble near the sources of the Jordan at a place called Panion. At this spot, a mountain rears its summit to an immense height. At the base of the cliff, there is an opening into an overgrown cavern. All right? That's this spot right here. Within this, plunging down to an immeasurable depth, 
is a yawning chasm enclosing a small volume of still water, the bottom of which no sounding line has been found long enough. Meaning they dropped the rope to see how deep this was and they couldn't ever find the bottom. This place was the place that they believed was the gates or the door to the underworld. And this is the place that Pan would go every year. He would descend to the underworld and they would have to woo him and entice him back out. Now along the ruins here, and this is what it looks like today, it's just a bunch of rocks and ruins. You can see the skeleton of what some of that looks like. And then there's all, all of these niches niches that are in, in the rocks, they're carved out, and this is where they would have placed their gods. And they would worship. There would be an area that was set aside for the goats, and then you'd have the temple priests, and the temple priests, priestesses, that were having relations with the goats to try to woo Pan out. And Jesus brings his disciples here, and he asks this question. Who do others say that I am? And the answer is, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Isaiah, some say even Jeremiah or another prophet. Everybody recognizes that Jesus is from God, that there is something supernatural that he is up to. And then Jesus points the question a little bit more definitively, and he's looking at them, and he says, but you, you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's usually the first one to talk, Peter, the one who usually sticks his foot in his mouth, he speaks up in this moment. Peter answered and he said to him, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Matthew, in the similar account in Matthew 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This unexpected question comes in this unexpected place. And the question is for us today, who is Jesus to you? Think about even the culture that we live in today. Who does everybody else say Jesus is? I'll tell you that our Orange County culture today is not saying that Jesus is John the Baptist or a great prophet. I'm not sure that Jesus is getting a lot of great press these days. But the question is for you, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Now, in our family, we're prepping for a bar mitzvah. We have a 12-year-old who's turning 13 next month. We're gonna take him to Israel. We're gonna have a bar mitzvah. We've been studying with an Israeli lady who's been teaching us Hebrew. I've been relearning Hebrew. And I decided that I need to have a little bit of a talk because I'm not your typical Jew. My wife is saying, of course, that's, that's absolutely right. But I wanted to make sure that she understood because I'm in the 1% of Jewish people. Uh, I'm a Jewish person that happens to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. She doesn't. And so last Monday we had to have a talk because she wants to come to the bar mitzvah and I'm not sure that she's going to like everything that she hears. And so we had to sit down and have an uncomfortable conversation this week. And I said, so you know about me, right? She says, yeah, you're crazy. 
I said, why? And she said, well, Jesus. You believe in Jesus? Yeah. I said, who do you think Jesus is? She said, he's a good rabbi. He's a good man. But if I don't have him in my heart, I can't go into heaven like I'm some murderer or something. That's what she said. And so today, we have people, even Jewish people, the ones that Jesus 2,000 years ago came after, and, and still today, there's this tension, there's this discomfort of, is Jesus really who he said he was? Now, Peter stands up, and he gets the answer right. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Now look at this. There is an outline, by the way. It's in your bulletin. But in verse 31, this is what he says. After Peter gets this answer correct, Jesus says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. So Jesus is rejected by the Jewish community at large just like he is today, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. This is prophetic. In fact, this is the first of three times in the book of Mark, in fact, in the next couple of chapters, where Jesus is going to tell his disciples, his followers, exactly what's going to happen to him. And it says in verse 32, he was stating the matter plainly. Now, Peter, who just got the answer right, doesn't like what Jesus just said. And it says that Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. Now, you've got to be pretty brave to talk to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, come here. Kind of have a difference of opinion here. Um, I just said that you were the Messiah and you just said that you were going to suffer, be rejected, be killed and then rise again. That's, that's not in the program that I read. And then turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus turns around to Peter and he says, I have some words of my own for you. And now Jesus is rebuking Peter. You know what he says? Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Of all the things that I want to hear from Jesus, this doesn't make the top 10. I like words like, well done, good and faithful servant. I like, hey, you did a good job with your kids. I don't want to hear from Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. And Peter must be thinking, I thought I just got the answer right. It's in this place that Jesus says, look, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, but I am not the Christ that you think that I am. Jesus says, I've come to save you, but not from Rome like you're expecting. I came to save you from your sin. And so I I wonder for us today, even as we look at who we think Jesus is, is Jesus this character of our own 
invention of our own desire that Jesus is going to be for me who I want him to be and not necessarily who he is supposed to be. And Peter gets a new education and it's gonna take them multiple times. In fact, I'm not sure they really ever got it until the resurrection. In this place, in Caesarea Philippi, it's a strip mall for the gods and Jesus is saying, Am I just one of them or am I the God? Am I the king? But he's saying, hey, Peter, (laughs) you've got it wrong. In fact, get behind me, Satan. Do you know why? Do you think he actually thinks that he's Satan? No, but that the power and the words and the thoughts that Peter have are satanic. Jesus is saying, this is my trajectory. This is my mission. This is where I am going. Peter, you are standing in the way. Get behind me. What you're supposed to be doing, Peter, is following. You're leading us in a different way. And it's interesting because you have one of the disciples, Peter, who is preventing Jesus from what he is called to do. That he would reign, not from a throne just yet, but he would reign from a splintery cross. And so we have Peter trying to prevent Jesus from what he is called to do, what he is wanting to do. And then later on we see in the story that Judas is the one that is ushering him in. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, what you're doing, how you're acting, your thought process is satanic. I want you to get behind me because this is the direction that I'm going. Now he gets the answer right, but he was still wrong. Would you just go back in the chapter, Mark 8, but go back to verse 22. Because here, there's this parable that actually takes place just before. Matt Don't covered this a few weeks ago, but it's this parable about partial sight. And it's interesting. They came from Bethsaida, which is 25 miles to the south. And so Jesus and his disciples, they walked 25 miles up to the north. But this is the context for this story. They were at Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus And they implored him. They begged Jesus to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? Now, it sounds weird to us that he would spit on his eyes, but it was believed back then that saliva had these healing properties. So Jesus does this. He says, do you see anything? And if you were to read this little parable, this story that takes place right here, The word see shows up nine times. He asks this blind man, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. This is a picture of partial sight. This is a picture of where the disciples are at. They see, but they don't see clearly. This is a message for Peter and the other disciples who are following along. Yes, you got the answer right. You know that I am the Messiah, but you don't see fully. And there's a lot of other passages that say we see in part or we see dimly, but there will be a day where everything will be revealed and we will see it all. But for now, the sight is limited. And so Jesus goes in from this point and he has an unexpected call. And he's calling the disciples out. And he says this in verse 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, 
If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The disciples, at the beginning of this little walk to Caesarea Philippi, looked at Jesus and they said, this is it. This is the long-awaited Messiah. He's going to drive Rome out. In fact, you look, and we'll talk about this in the next couple of chapters, but every time Jesus talks about his Messiahship and the fact that he would be scourged and the fact that he would be beaten and killed, but then he would resurrect and come back, there's always this little fight that happens amongst the disciples, and they're vying for position in the kingdom. They still think that he's going to overthrow Rome when in fact he came to die and to overthrow sin. And he says the way that we are going to do this is through death. Now, I think it's fascinating as we look at this passage. I want to just bring it up from a different gospel. Matthew talks about this gospel in an interesting way. When, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Jesus says, or Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then what, what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. A lot of theologians parse out all kinds of Greek to talk about this. Peter, his name is Petros, little rock. And he says, upon this rock, Petra, big rock, I will build my church. And so the Catholic Church looks at this and they say, Peter, this is where we get the papacy of the church. Peter, you are Peter, and upon you, Peter, I will build my church. There's others who say that Jesus is saying, you are Peter, and upon this rock, me, Jesus, the cornerstone, I will build my church. But location and place is important. Here's one other option. What if Jesus is saying, you are Peter, and upon this rock, Caesarea Philippi, this huge place, this strip mall to the gods, upon this place, I will build my church. Jesus says, in this place, I will build my church. And today we are part of this church. This is the place, this is the one place in scripture where the word church shows up, ecclesia, the called out ones. That Jesus wants to build his church at a place like this, where there is no more evil place than this worship of Pan. Jesus says, from this place, we're going to go out and we are going to build the church. And then he says, and the gates 
of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, where's the gates of Hades? For that crowd 2,000 years ago, they looked at that place that they couldn't sink a line that was deep enough where Pan would go to the underworld and everybody knew that Jesus was talking about this was the place that was called the gates of Hades. Upon this place, I will build my church. We will go and you know what gates are? Gates are defensive structures. Jesus says, from this place, we are going on the offensive. From this place, we are going to attack evil. And he brings up this paradigm because I think the paradigm that we are familiar with is first there is life and then there is death. And death is this thing that, that the disciples, they thought, well, if he dies and he can't possibly be the Messiah, how is this going to work? Jesus is changing this paradigm and he's saying there has to be death if there is going to be life. And so he invites them. He says, if anyone wishes to follow me, take up your cross. Take up your cross. The way that leads to life is through death. And this is a change for the disciples. This is not what they were expecting. You guys know who this guy is? This is Charlemagne. Remember Charlemagne? Charles the Great. He was dubbed the Holy Roman Empire of the Holy, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire after Rome was not an empire for about three centuries. He takes over a good portion of the world through military might and strength. He dies in the year 814 AD. And he has a request when he is buried. He says, I want you to put me in a tomb and I want you to seat me on my marble throne. That's it, right there. It's actually in a church. It still stands there today. Put me on my throne. After I'm embalmed, I want you to dress me in my royal robes, crown on my head, and this tomb would be paved in gold coins. And then he has something interesting that he requests. He says, I want you to put a Bible on my lap and my finger will be pointing to a certain verse. Well, a couple hundred years later, this story gets out and people are talking about it. And so 200 years later, they go in to the tomb of Charlemagne and they find him exactly as the description was there. This is an artist rendition of what that may have looked like. They saw him and his skin had decayed. His bones are there. The crown is still on his head. And they looked at his finger, the bones of his finger, and he is pointing to a verse. The verse is our passage today. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Coming from an emperor, Charlemagne the Great, who had gained the whole world, but he's trying to tell a story here. So what is it for us that we would be willing to forfeit our soul? 
Jesus is calling his disciples into death. This is not a very popular message. Hey, you want to believe in Jesus? You want to become a Christian? You want to be a follower of the way? The way is death. And so the question for us is today, as we are building the church, go to Caesarea Philippi, there's nothing left there. But the church is still alive. And the church continues to build. But Jesus says that the way that we do that is we have to die to ourselves. And so my question for us is what part of you needs to die in order to follow Jesus? What part of you needs to die in order to follow Jesus? Thomas Akempis, he writes this. Jesus today has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who carry his cross. Many who yearn for comfort, few who long for distress. Plenty of people he finds to share his banquet, few to share his fast. Everyone desires to take part in his rejoicing, but few are willing to suffer anything for his sake. There are many that follow Jesus as far as the breaking of bread, few as far as drinking the cup of suffering many that revere his morality, and few that follow him in the indignity of the cross, many that love Jesus as long as nothing runs counter to them, many that praise and bless him as long as they receive comfort from him. But should Jesus hide from them and leave them for a while, they fall to complaining or become deeply depressed. I think for me, I long for the comfort of Jesus. I long for the blessings. I long for all of the good stuff. But when I'm being called out to suffer with him, to go this way of death, I don't like it. So the call is for us to come and die. And then what part of us needs to come alive that we together at Calvary would build this church together. Um, this morning, we're going to take communion. We get to do this all together. It's a beautiful thing. And as we do this, I want you to remember Jesus in his death and his suffering. That this, for millennia now, has been this coming together. That at this table, we all come together and we follow Jesus and we remember him in his death and we remember him in his suffering. And we're going to pass these elements, but I also want you to hear this, that when Jesus says that the gates of Hades will not prevail, that there are some translators that believe that this says that the wages of death will not prevail. And I believe that even as Jesus sat with his disciples and he took that bread and he took that cup, that he knew that not even the wages of death the power of death would hold him back, that that wouldn't prevail, but that indeed he would prevail, that he would come back to life so that we might follow after him, so that we might be a part of building this church. So I'm gonna pray. We're going to pass the elements. I want you to sit with that. I want you to hold on to the cup and I want you to hold on to the bread and think about its significance and who Jesus says 
that he is. He is the Messiah and he came so that we might have life through his death. Would you pray with me? So our God and Father, we thank you for the precious gift of your son, Jesus Christ. The grace that's been poured out on each of us for those of us who believe as we take this bread and this cup this morning, may we truly know who you are and why you came and what you came to do and that you are still in this business of building your church. You are still in the business of reconciling hearts back to you through your precious body and blood, we remember this morning. Thank you for that sacrifice. In the name of Jesus, amen.
shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So fast forward a little bit and now Jesus is sitting, reclining around a table with his disciples on the eve of all that he had been talking about. On the eve of his scourging and his rejection by the leaders in Jerusalem. And he's sitting at a Passover meal and he holds up this piece of bread, this unleavened bread, knowing symbolically This would be his body. And he says, I want you to take this. And whenever you do this, whenever you eat this bread, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Let's take that together. And then he takes the cup. It's a cup of redemption. And he says, I'm not going to take this cup with you. We will not drink this cup again until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Instead, that night and the next day, Jesus would drink a very different cup. It would be the cup of God's wrath. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so he says, I pour that out for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. So, this morning is an invitation for us to come and to worship, and we're doing this all together. How beautiful, how good this is to be able to take communion together as a family. And so we want to worship together. Part of our worship, and this might even be death to self right now, is we're going to take our offering this morning. And so I invite you to even have this be an act of worship. And so I want to pray over this And then we'll sing and praise God together, all together. So would you pray with me? God, 
Thank you for your unexpected way. This story that has evolved over time that now reaches us and you are calling your disciples still today to come and to die, Lord, is an invitation that is not easy. So Lord, whatever that means for us this morning, whatever it is that you are calling us to, whatever that looks like for each of us in this room this morning to come and die to, um, give us your wisdom, give us your words this morning. And that we would pour out this morning an offering of praise as we do that even with our finances, as we do that with our voices this morning. May you receive the glory in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.